I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash Sound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Julia Block, whose book Letters to Kelly Clarkson was a Lambda Literary Award finalist and whose 2015 book is Valley Fever, uh, both of those published by Sidebrow Books, and whose Hollywood Forever, a chapbook from Little Red Leaves textile series, is a still newer place to find her wonderful verse, who is currently working on a full-length critical study of gender and genre in the North American long poem, and who, I'm thrilled to say, directs the creative writing program here at Penn and co-edits Jacket 2 magazine. And by Michelle Gil Montero, poet and translator of contemporary avant-garde Latin American writing, among whose books of translations are Mouth of Hell by Argentine poet Maria Negroni and this blue novel by Mexican poet Valerie Meyer Caso, and whose own poetry has been collected in her book Attached Houses, published by Brooklyn Arts Press in 2013, and in many journals and magazines and translations in the Oxford Book of Latin American Poetry. And by Joseph Massey, who comes to us today from the Pioneer Valley of Massachusetts. You're still in the Pioneer Valley. Still there. Just uh, east of the Hampshires. That's right. Yeah. Author of Areas of Fog, Shearsman, 2009, At the Point, Shearsman, 2011, To Keep Time, Omnidon, 2014, and whose 2015 book, Ill Locality, one word, Ill Locality, received a glowing New York Times book review, review praising its splendor, its dry humor, that for sure, and its evocation of the ambitious brevities of Dickinson, Eigner, Niedeker, Williams, and others. Joe, congrats on that great review and all the positive response to Illocality. Thanks, Al. And Michelle, thank you for coming all the way from Latrobe, Pennsylvania, a little bit east of Pittsburgh. Thank you. Actually, I live in Pittsburgh, but work in Latrobe. But so you pass by Latrobe on the train, waving to your colleagues. Exactly. And, and what's the winter landscape of Pennsylvania like? Ah. You saw the whole of it. Well, this hasn't been a typical winter in in Pittsburgh, but usually it's pretty snowy. But it's a, a Pennsylvania's warm. a big state, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I just well, we're really it. glad that you came all this way, and Julia. Always, always good to see you here inside this little old cottage. Did I say college? Kind of tries to be that, but cottage. Hello. Hi. Well, we are all of us here today to talk about four very short poems by William Bronk, The Inability, On Being Together, The Rapport, and Names Like Barney Canes. Let me say that again. Names Like Barney Canes. I love that title even though I don't know what it means. Each of them just four lines long, and each from the book Finding Losses, which was published by Elizabeth Press in 1976. Penn Sound's Bronk page includes two recordings, both done in the fall of 1978. Our poems were recorded by Verna Gillis in Hudson Falls, New York, on October 13, 1978. So here now is William Bronk performing four poems from Finding Losses. The Inability 
She wants me to say something pretty to her because we both know the unabettable bleak of the world. Make believe, she says, what harm. It may be so. I can't. I don't. On being together, I watch how beautifully two trees stand together, one against one, not touching, not awareness. But we would try these. We're always wrong. The rapport. There's a dead dog at Barbara's Bridge tied to a tree and two ugly stories. Why? Make your own choice. Either could be hearing, seeing. I believe both of them. Names like Barney Kane's Two locks on the feeder are named for him. I've asked, and nobody knows who he is. Alexander Alfred Quetzalcoatl. Nobody nowhere, never. Nothing. Wow. <laughs> that seems like a good place to stop. But, yeah, <laughs> nothing. I don't know how he said nothing. Uh, you know, we we should talk about the poems individually, but let's start by talking about how these four poems, which I picked from various parts of the book, they don't come in sequence, how they're unified or how they present a coherent tone or idiom or location or setting. Michelle, you want to start? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I was really interested in these four together. Um, and I think Bronx work tends to kind of, you know, cross-reference a whole lot and repeat things. But these in particular are so uncannily related in two-ness for me. I notice there's a lot of doubleness. Um, mm. Two comes up a lot. Um, the question of a choice. Um, and I think very much so the question of separation. That's such an important theme in his work. Great. Um, we will get back to this duality thing. Um, Joe, any other general observations? I mean, we've got four poems out of many. What's the tone? What's the setting? Uh, what's the what's his attitude or the speaker's attitude? Well, it's it's quintessential Bronk, um, unable to say that anything is definite. Um, he's completely comfortable and almost ecstatic within that state of not knowing. Um, when he says in the uh, the rapport. Hearing, seeing, I believe both of them, both of the stories of the the dead dog. He really means it. Mm. He really believes them both equally. Hearing, seeing, I believe both of them. It It's almost as if one of the stories is about hearing the dog and the other maybe is about seeing the dog. There are many ways to read what those two stories are, but but he believes both of them because he wants to be open to all the possibilities. Um but I went ahead and started talking about one of the poems. I'm still interested, Julia, in any overview we might have. What about tone or language or setting? 
Yeah, there seems to be a kind of, I mean, just picking off Picking up what Michelle said about two-ness, there's like a dwelling between spaces, I think, in each of these, which is really interesting to me because each of them reads as a little aphorism or as almost like a little essay on something, on being, on experience, on a particular image. And so there's a lot about each of these poems that feels provisional, but also, as Joseph said, very certain. There's a tremendous amount of certainty, even when the certainty is about the experience of dwelling between two different things. Mm. Well, let's, I mean, Michelle's right that there's two in all these, but let's take the first two poems, The Inability and On Being Together, because those twos seem to be possibly about some kind of relationship or a couple, a human relationship. The first, because there's a she who wants the speaker, presumably, to say something pretty, and he can't. And then in the second, we've got two trees that relate somehow, uh, and we are trying to d- relate in that way. So, Michelle, you're responsible for this two stuff. Um, <laughs> do you want to say something about either of those poems? Well, yeah, sure. Um, those are I, I, There's a lot of echoing that happens, and there's a lot of structural um, mirroring or, like, almost mirroring that he is doing in these that I notice. What is the speaker... What's the problem with the speak? I mean, if this relationship is problematic in the first poem, the inability, why would that be so? Well, both of them live in knowledge or awareness of the unabettable bleakness or bleak of the world. And so both are forced to make a choice um, about how they want to deal with that, how to speak or write in that anguish of awareness and they make different choices. Um, she says, "Make believe," and he. Hey, you're a writer. You should be doing yeah. fiction for us, so we can ha- we can tolerate the bleak world. And he's saying, "No, I'm not that kind of writer." In a way, right? And he's saying, "Well, in a way, this is a kind of ars poetica because he's saying I'm not saying something pretty, and I'm not making believe. Um, instead, I'm writing this poem of frustration and uncertainty." Um, so in a way, I mean, there's also a kind of doubling of what this poem is and what she would have him write. Boy. Yeah. You know what? Michelle just sort of did that poem. I, I didn't know. mean to. No. <laughs> there's so much you more mo- to say You most this. definitely did. No, that's great. Um, Julia, Joe, anything to add to that? Um, the I can't, I don't is so emphatic for a person who's living in ambiguity. It's pretty emphatic. He seems to be reacting to her request. Julia? I'm just, I'm so confused by something in this poem. Can we talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, The unabettable bleak of the world. And I think it must relate to that I can't, I don't. But I think as, I think of abetting as something really negative. So I feel like there's something in this poem about how this bleak cannot be, there's no relief. There's no um, letting up of this bleak. But unabettable bleak almost feels like the opposite. I'm I'm confused. I, I think that's a really interesting part too, and I I I'm I struggle with it too. I mean, abettable. I think of a crime. Yeah, you know. So the bleak is yeah. a a crime. Yeah. It's maybe fraudulent. I mean, he talks a lot about falseness in a lot of his work. So, you know, it's it's the, com- the bleak the is being a, committed by the world, Michelle. Yeah. Right? Is it that the bleakness is just so bleak that it couldn't possibly get any bleaker? It's a fraud. I think that's exactly what um, yeah, he's saying. Yeah, I think yeah. that is it. And that's, that's Bronk. Uh, the unabettable bleak is scattered throughout his work. But I'm really drawn to the phrase make-believe because it's almost sarcastic in a way. She's mocking the kind of poetry or the kind of fiction 
right? Fiction is the word here, right? Right. Something pretty. She's mocking the kind of fiction that he would make. She says, why can't you just pretend so that the world seems better? Isn't that what writers are supposed to do? And he says, I have an inability. My original question, Joe, was how do we characterize the relationship? It could be a writer-reader. It could be lovers with two expectations about what the relationship does to the world. Maybe the relationship is something pretty and he can't tolerate that. I mean... Let's not get personal, any of us, but, you know, as a writer, you're one thing and as a lover, you're another. And maybe those things are part of the inability. Well, it could be an alter ego, too, or a therapist or. um, Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Let's go to On Being Together. I'm sure we can come back to the unabettable bleak. Uh, On Being Together. So we've got trees and trees are not aware, presumably. They're not touching why, Julia. Say the obvious, please. They don't overlap. They're set. They're separate plants. They they're right. totally different organisms. And they're rooted, so they don't really have a choice of the relationship. Very much like the sort of around here, the anthemic poem by John Ashbery, "Some Trees," where he's trying to define relationship there. And the, as here, the trees simply are beautiful because they are. They just are. There isn't any think, human thinking about it. Okay, so Michelle. Um, but we would try these as a turn because we suggests a couple of humans who are observing the relationship of the trees. Try these. What? What is that's a funny way to put it. Yeah. Um, I mean, these could be touching and awareness. Um, these things, this, these, these ways of being. These ways of being. I mean, and it's also this moment where we realize that the first two lines are entirely a metaphor. They're, they've sort of served to illustrate something that's really happening between people and not at all um, trees, per se. Mm. The emphasis doesn't fall so much on the trees themselves in the world, but I think on the problem of proximity. It's so, even hard to tell how close the trees are together. They're not touching, but they're um, against they each stand, other. They stand together, but are against. How close stand are together they? implies that they're unified, Yeah, they're aligned. together against, you yeah. know. Julia, but turns the poem but as opposed as distinct from that we yeah i mean i'm kind of with Is michelle this a seduction like, poem? i think i think these yeah these has to refer to we we would try to touch we would try to be, be aware. aware of each other shouldn't there be another but but we but are we always, are always wrong well, no like, i think we are we always can't do that we are always wrong in in trying i mean either it's a really bleak poem about how we can never really touch each other, even if we are touching each other, even if we are trying to be aware of each other, or we are always wrong in thinking that touching and being aware of each other would lead to something that we want. Joe, you are uh, someone who's been influenced by Bronk. Yeah, um, definitely. And your own poems almost always turn on a metapoetic moment. Um, is it possible that the same inability that is a writer's fiction-making inability of the first poem is an inability that affects the relationship, possibly, of love in the second? Definitely, yeah. I, I read On Being Together as a, just a rejection of the pathetic fallacy of personification, that the world is so unabettably bleak. Um, it's not going to help uh, that sense of bleakness to compare trees to what it means to to be human. It's a poem saying we're we're alone. So the inability of the first poem is the inability 
to make something pretty, to make a kind of fiction, a writing that smooths over unbearable right. bleakness. What is the inability of the second poem, Michelle? Of on being together? Yeah. To be together, I think. I mean, love, friendship. Can't or, do it. Yeah. I mean, I think people are fundamentally and irremit, you know, they're impossibly Unabettably. alone. Unabettably. I was going to, I sort of said three words at once there. <laughs> Unabettably alone, you know, that we're not only separated from some real world that comes up in a lot of the wrong writer poems. is if the first is in Ars Poetica, the writer is unabettably bleak alone. And love is not possible the way it is for trees that just don't have to think about these things. Possible? Is and yet that... there's a kind of I don't know, there there is might maybe just a tiny bit of tenderness in this poem because this is after all the experience of being together. So we experience something even if that something is always never quite touching, never quite being aware. That is what togetherness is. So I feel like it's an honest acknowledgement of how, how deep and challenging intimacy can be. There's a dead dog at Barbara's Bridge tied to a tree and two ugly stories. Why? Make your own choice. Either could be hearing, seeing, I believe both of them. In the rapport and names like Barney Kane's, we seem to be in a place now. We seem to be in a small village or a town. I'm just guessing, you know. Uh, there's a locality here. Unlike the first two poems where, you know, there's a little bit, certainly in the second we get a little, you know, there's some trees, so it's a nature poem of, of sorts. But in the rapport, there's Barber's Bridge, which we seem to have to know what it is, you know, sort of we're in it in media race. And Barney seems like a local figure and the feeder seems like, sounds like a supply for uh, cow pastures or something. I don't know. Anyway, I, I feel like we're in a different setting. Let's do the rapport. Um, two ugly stories about what, Joe? What Dead dog. What, what, what's going on there? Well, it's a dead dog, literally. And... Um... I don't know. Yeah, it's Bronx's uh, rapport with death, which is throughout all of his poems. Um, the I, rapport is the rapport with the death. The rapport is the rapport with death, yeah, with Why uncertainty. Why is the dog tied to a tree? This is not a good ending for the dog. It doesn't, with that detail, invite us to make up our own stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's really true. Why There's is only he two tied? stories, Michelle. <laughs> you, you, you brought up two. Why not many stories? Why isn't this truly postmodern or uh, Rashomon-like and we have... Uh, infinite stories. Why just two? Well, it could be the rapport. That's This could be an overheard conversation, two people discussing, well, I think this happened to the dog. Well, I think this must have happened. So that it could be quite literal. That he's, he's heard two stories. Make your own choice, Michelle. Who's your? That's such an interesting moment in this poem because it just lifts out of the situation and becomes a larger ethos, I think, about choice. Um, and there are a lot of things to choose here. You have to choose between two stories. You have to choose between hearing and seeing, actually, too. Um, you know, do we believe the image that we see or do we believe the explanations that have followed it? Um, do we believe the origin stories of that image? And then also kind of we have to choose the reader, I think. I choose between either and both. Do we believe both can be true or do we pick one? Do we believe that we have to pick one? Yeah, the third line is a bit of a oxymoron, right? On one hand, 
make your own choice. So either could be the one that's right. And the second comment is they're equally right. Joe, how can – you were going to say something else, but I, well, I just yeah. can't help but ask you a question. Sure. How can such a minimalist poet leave things so wide open? I think so, that's what makes so many short poems work is that the, there is that space for the reader to come in and, you know, make his or her own choice. Um, and in this poem, I think the only – thing left is the fact that the dog is dead. That's what matters. That's what's there. Um, there is no choice to make. It's just that death. There's a dead dog. And what we're doing is telling stories about it. Maybe we should go to the bridge and get rid of, you know, take care of the dog. Mm -hmm. I mean, is there a slight, slight mock of the poet who is always interested in stories, even in the first, if I'm the therapist, with this couple, and we're doing couples therapy with the people in the inability, I'm going to say, can you guys stop talking about which kind of literary style is appropriate and maybe turn to each other and just well, and love each other? Why are we always talking about this? And part of therapy and also part of the minimalist poem is getting past the story and getting into what's what the detail is. So I almost read that third line, make your own choice um, I mean, it's a command grammatically, but it's also, I, I it seems like the poet's really in, insisting, um, you know, you have to you have to choose, let's choose the image. And so I also read that last that last line, hearing, seeing. I believe both of them both of them is the hearing and the seeing. I'm going to choose not to, the stories, but gonna, the hearing, seeing. I'm going to you know hear this story, but I'm going to really hear and see the fact, the detail. What do we have? Do we have hearing or seeing? I don't believe we really have a choice in this poem. I mean, I don't believe it's a sincere. I mean, I, I think it's the kind of choice that we make knowing that it doesn't matter, that the dog is dead and the stories are ugly. Um, yeah, they're both ugly. So that's not much of a choice. The fact is there. Death is sort of there at the beginning of the poem, like Joe pointed out. I hear, um, you know, a, a kind of Winesburg, Ohio, um, Spoon River. I hear... I could be totally wrong. I'm projecting. But I hear Bronk being in this kind of town, small town, presumably, where people tell stories about little things like a dead dog. And both of the texts I just mentioned, particularly Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio, they, the, the, the narrator is committed to writing about the town but has enough of a distance to kind of mock this. Is there any distance between the speaker and this small town storytelling, uh, you know, ugly stories, village rumors. Joe, you live in a small town. <laughs> well, it, it's... It, and you write about things in small towns. I guess the, the difference between this poem and uh, like a Spoon River anthology poem, I mean, Bronk is unwilling to engage in any of the gossip about the dog. Um, and I find that kind of humorous. And I, like Michelle said, make your own choice. The choice is already made in the poem. Um, yeah. There is no, it's, it's a total acceptance of uncertainty. Hmm. Names like Barney Keynes, first of all, love the title. Anybody, what, what's going on there? Say anything. Julia, help us get started with this poem. Well, Barney Keynes sounds like a famous person. So even if we don't know who he is, he must be famous in this poem or in the world of this poem. I love the sound of it, name and cane. Um, I don't and the, know, the, there's the names and canes rhyme. Yeah, exactly. Just about. 
this is well this there's there's a lot of locatability in this the feeder if you read um Bronx biography is you know the the feeder canal in Glens Falls and he walked there all the time so this is a very located poem in that sense Oh you just gave us some information there's a feeder canal Canal yeah so it's and the locks on the feeder oh. you know so it's it's about is it this canal where he walked their canal is, is this so part of the Erie canal system is it? I don't know, actually. <laughs> My geography is horrible. So, But it's a 19th a, century canal probably, right? Yeah, Gotta it be. is. It yeah. is. Okay. Tell us more. The locks are the leveling, water leveling. They're exactly. mechanistic. And two locks are named after this oh, Barney Kane. Okay. But what's funny is I, you know, I was thinking actually about how in Ben Lerner's novel he talks, he, he raises the question of whether Bronk had email. And I Googled Barney Kane just to so see if I, I could find no Barney. There's all. no There's help. Nothing. And then I wonder like how Bronk would feel about that, about Google and about how some things are still so well, he does unlocatable, a little Google, unresearchable. Does he do Googling in the third line? Well, yeah. the third line is really is really interesting. Do you remember how he reads it? He reads it breaking it up into these little fricative syllable. I mean, just these really sharp little syllables. I don't know, actually. Um, it's a Nahuatl word, Quetzalcoatl, you know. A Mesoamerican deity, we should say, right? Yeah, it was. Um, it was a. I think Quetzalcoatl is a was a Maya, or actually an Aztec god that was appropriated right. later. It was appropriated later, and it kind of moved north. So we have Alexander, presumably the Great. So that's empire guy. We have Alfred the Great, presumably, which is defending England against the Vikings, another empire. And then Quetzalcoatl. The uh, feathered serpent god. Yeah. So what's he doing with those three names? Well, he's playing. It's very playful because these are famous names, whereas none of us could find Barney Kane on Google. <laughs> and so when you, whenever you put a name into a poem, you're creating a relationship with that name. You know, it's like we it's like we know these guys they're intimately. Solid. And they're solid names. They're vast, solid names. But at the same time, I think there's also that bronch, bronchian doubt in them. Yeah. Where, um, where's the doubt? Barney. Because they sound, the, the meter of them is so certitudinous. certitudinous. Um, it's true. He yeah. Actually, I marked down that in another poem of his, he writes about names a lot. And in another poem, Spades, Kettles, and Anonymity, that I just happened upon recently, he says, now I know their names are pin-ons. Um, you know, there's a kind of names don't really designate the thing or that. the person. Mm. Um, so years and like, years later, because if this feet. is a 19th century lock and they named there's a bit of Ozymandias here, you know, like this, first of all, upstate New York canals are not exactly, sorry, upstate New York listeners of Pump Talk, but they're not exactly <laughs> productive the, the way they were in the 1840s before trains, right? Yeah, I don't and think so, ships pass on that. So Barney Kane once thought, I command, they named this after me because I, you know, was the businessman who made the locks possible. And every, all the commerce of this town is owing to me, Barney Kane. And now... Who the hell is Barney Kane? <laughs> the realest and most locatable name in this poem for me is the feeder. Actually, I mean it's it's yeah. capitalized the feeder, um, and it's not a person at all. So we get three names in the third line, which are definite names, and then we get four uh, emptinesses, a vacating of identity. 
Well, he's he's putting Barney Kane on the same mantle as Alexander, Alfred, and Quetzalcoatl. And that last line for me is just uh, a statement of civilizations wiped out. Barney Kane is on the same level as Alexander, Alfred, Quetzalcoatl. Um, the name is is essentially just as meaningless and uh, unimportant. So it is a little Ozymandias like. It totally Julia? is. Yeah. Yeah, like even if you write a name down, it's not going to last. Mm. It's always going to be impermanent. So let's go around, once around for everybody, and say again why, you know, what what is Bronchian about these four poems? And also add, if you can, why why uh, not just poets but readers should encounter Bronk? What has he got to offer to us? And also, if you want to add, um, how are these finding losses? That's the title of the book. And these little these four line poems, there's a book full of short poems. What does this have to do with finding losses? Any of those or all of those, Julia? Well, I really like the contradiction in the title, Finding Losses, and I'm curious about what it means to locate loss or locate absence, aporia, um, emptiness. And in each of these four-line poems, I see I see something, and I'm invited to identify what's lacking in that thing, no matter how vividly it's it's shown to me. And you're not a Bronchian poet, I don't think. But what, why do you why do you like Bronk, or why why would you return to him? Well, I'm I'm really taken with the movability of many of these lines and phrases. Like, but we would try these. I'm going back to that and on being together. I really enjoy how these can refer to touching and awareness. It can refer to the trees themselves. It could refer to something that we don't have access to. So these a, is a powerful word there. Very yeah. powerful. And it's, so there's a lot of pointing in these poems, pointing to many different kinds of things, even though they're tiny, tiny poems. Mm. I'm, I'm fascinated by Bronx, the way he exists in language, the way he doubts language so completely, and at the same time, how that sort of leads him to make it all the more material, um, to be that more careful and more um, finely tuned. And and for me, it's really, I, I, I struggle a lot with the music in Bronk. I feel like these are actually very musical poems, but in a, in a way that I'm not used to maybe referring to as music. Um, there's a lot of sort of distinction teasing between words. Um, and sounds, and a lot of sort of pointing out the limits of what words can mean. And that's a very strange place to write from, mm. and I think also a really important place to write from. Mm. Thank you. Great. Uh, Joe? What I love about these poems, and I've been reading Bronx for years, it's there are four crystallizations of Bronx's, I think, core argument or his core motivation in, in his in in the, the the voice of his poems, which is an ecstatic accept, acceptance of non-duality, um, and each poem approaches it uniquely. You have a relationship. He's using trees. He's using a dead dog. He's using Barney Kane. Um, I like the the versatility of of what, and I think in other poets' hands could be a very rigid kind of stale approach. Mm. That's great. All right, so let's go around with final words then, because um, we could talk about these poems for a long time more. Uh, anything we forgot to say about any of the lines, any of the words, just a final thought, and then I'll have one as well. Julia, final thought? 
Well, just to go back to what we were talking about in terms of the way these poems open up multiple meanings, I I really appreciate that feeder. I know it's I know it must be something. I know it's a proper noun because it's capitalized, but I also know what the word feeder means literally. And so I enjoy the image that makes me think about, you know, something that transmits something else, something that feeds into something else. And I like the plainness of that term and the idea that it's capitalized and made more grand. And of course, now I know that it actually refers to something in Thank space. you, Michelle. Yeah, for, thanks, for, Michelle. For giving us the denotation. Sorry, Julia. No, that's good. Yeah. Great. Michelle, final thought? Um, I just want to say something about maybe the insistence in these poems that, you know, they sort of insist in spite of their doubt. And that's... Um, and that's aided by his And the way the statement insists, the way the, the weight falls on the verb to be a lot. The way How do you hear his voice when he... I mean, talk about, it may be so, I can't, I don't, is about as unconfident as possible. But the way he reads it, it's pretty... He's pretty adamant. Right. I mean, hearing him say... And, and also in names like Bernie Keynes, the way he reads that last line, nobody, nowhere, never, nothing. You know, it's, Is that what he says? Um, nothing. Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of insistence in negation as well. And I think with all of Bronx's limits that were pointed to, what ultimately I think I feel the weight of isn't so much um, what's in the poem, but everything that's not in the poem. Mm. Terrific. Thank you. Joe, final thought? Hearing him read the poems, um, I had been reading them for so long before I finally heard his voice. And what comes across in the recordings is just a, that he's just a, a static. He's relishing in the unabettable bleak. And I, I really love that. I love that there's so much joy in poems that are filled with doubt and um, sorrow. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'm, that voice is something. Well, I have two final thoughts. Sorry. As your host, I get... I'm entitled to give two final thoughts. Um, first, in On Being Together, um, when I think about Ashbury's Some Trees, I think about the way in which those trees, the accidental relationship, is in, informs the young poet who wants to learn about relationship and takes a cue rather than from human relationships, which for the young Ashbury is not a good model for what he wants in love. So he goes to the trees and he figures, well, we're just here. This is different. This is different because the trees are not a model. We would try what they can't do. And the fact that we are always wrong, I find very powerful and disconcerting. It's to, to borrow a, a word from Joe Massey, it's illocality. These trees are totally local because they're rooted. But the feeling I feel as a human being trying to mo use them as a model for relationships is illocality. We're always wrong. We're always displaced. We're always dislocated. It's a poem of dislocation. And on being together then winds up being ironic. And then my second final thought is that just I just like the second line of names like Barney Keynes. I have ass and nobody knows who he is. You know, for a lot of us, Going around town saying, who's Barney Kane? Who's Barney Kane? And hearing, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, I don't know. That would be a disappointment and would not make for a poem. But William Bronk was probably, to use a word, Joe, you've used a couple times in this poem talk, ecstatic. He, that's when he realized he could write a poem about it. Like, nobody knows. That I, hey, I can do something with that. Well, we like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise. 
which is a chance for several of us, or all three if you're quick, to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. And Julia, you're smiling, so I assume you have something. Yes, I'm enjoying a really interesting chapbook that's new to me. It's called Dispatches, Three Experiments in Travel Writing, edited by Andrew Ridker. It's featuring writing by C.A. Conrad, Kayla E., and Daniel Schoenbeck. And it's got a beautiful cover, and I recommend it highly. Very cool. Joe, gather some paradise. You got something you want to recommend? Sure, yeah. Kate Colby's I Mean... Kate Colby Ugly of Providence, Prince, Rhode Island. Providence, Rhode Island. I mean, is a long poem. Um, I think the style is anaphoristic. It's a repeated. Every line I mean, is I mean, I mean, I mean. I mean. It's I mean. like a hundred times, and it just the poem just eats itself alive. It's beautiful. It just moves all over the place. I love it. And it closes with three beautiful essays. Um, it's, a, it's one of the most interesting books I've read in quite some time. And I have the book, and I, I agree with you. It's quite quite marvelous. Michelle? Well, I have a stack of action books on my nightstand right now, so I just want to plug that press a little bit and say that they're doing lots of great things. Fantastic. Well, my gathering paradise, I'm not sure how I'm going to say this, but so you came, Michelle, you came across Pennsylvania to Poem Talk because we were doing something on Bronx. The work that you do didn't immediately put me in mind of Bronx. Joe Massey somehow connected to you because you're an admirer of Joe's poems and you invited him to read at St. Vincent's. Is that right? Yeah. So I just, I think what I want to say is despite certain conversations in the poetry and poetics community about how we don't all align, there's constantly this um, interactivity, two very different poets uh, finding each other, inviting each other. And then when it's time to do a poem talk about a very different poem, poet for you, but maybe a, a more congenial poet for you, you, you get invited. You know, I didn't know you. So that I guess I'm just being happy and nice about the way the poetry community connects each other. So I really like that. Feeling very happy today. Well, that's all the uh, unabettable bleakness of the world. Actually, I sh- it's unabettable bleak of the world we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing, CPCW, and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Joe Massey, Michelle Gil-Montero, and Julia Block, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardiner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardiner. And Zach, are you hiding another staff member in there? No, it's just you. I just wanted to make sure I... You're just looking at the empty space next to you in there in the control room. Next time on Poem Talk... We mark the 100th episode of this podcast series by hosting here at the Writer's House a special program convening seven poem talkers from across the years. I've asked Herman Beavers, Maria Damon, William J. Harris, Erica Kaufman, Steve McLaughlin, Charles Bernstein, and Tracy Morris, each to select two previous episodes and to play a clip from each and comment and add some new thoughts, and I'm really looking forward to such a retrospective. This is Al Phil Reese, and I hope you'll join us for that or another Poem Talk. <laughs>